Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intending to inspire you with ideas from the margins, the periphery. Why? Because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today. This week, I spoke to Carol Samford. Carol is a true contrarian disruptor. Uh, She's written multiple books, has been teaching and inquiring and practicing the art of regenerative business for many, many, many decades. I know one of our other guests on Peripheral Thinking, Marcus Link, cites Carol as one of the true inspiring pioneers. Uh, I'm super happy to have her on the podcast. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Carol, thanks for joining us on Peripheral Thinking. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. So I kind of mentioned just before we were speaking, kind of very familiar with you. You're a prolific writer, a prolific teacher. Uh, I heard a conversation which you'd had with Tyson Young-Comporter uh, a short while ago, and that really kind of prompted me to to get in touch. But I think the, the kind of classic way of starting these conversations is for somebody to sort of summarise what they do. But I guess the specific question I had for you is for some. What are somebody who is so prolific and has sort of amassed decades and decades of sort of insight and experience and expertise? How do you sort? How do you summarize what it is that you do? One word: consciousness. Consciousness, right? Okay. So I believe humans have an uh, an innate but undeveloped capacity to be able to understand the moving of life and to play a role in all that. Uh, And that our role is to keep us awake, not falling into the um, mechanicalness, which will be our default position if we're not developing a working consciousness. So in some ways, my last book, Indirect Work, is the underpinning of all my work. Uh, and people say that to me, oh, I've been working with you for 30, 40, or 10, whatever years. And I now see how it all fits together. And the thread is having human beings not decide what it is that Earth needs or society and projecting that, but instead to develop capacity in each and as many as we can human beings. I don't think we have to to 100% of people to change the the window and the way we work. But we need some percentage. And uh, some of the ancient lineage teachers say it's only 2%, maybe 3 and So my work is, my intention is to reach uh, not myself. I have uh, a few thousand members in my communities and way beyond that the number of readers and seekers. Uh, to give them the capacity to evoke in themselves consciousness and then to give others the capacity to develop. And the word is cathex. That is a psychological word meaning I can say to myself at any time, like when we're starting today, I say to myself, Carol, wake up. And the minute I do that, it's almost like, oh God, here we go again. I got to come up with follow my principles of I can't give the same answers I've given before. I got to create something new and I work, work me. So collecting consciousness is the work of human beings and therefore building capacity. 
for that is my work. Okay, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. I really, uh, I like the the reference that you made to the um, the change, which is potentially linked to the kind of the, the teaching lineages, this idea of two to three uh, percent. I know the activism group Extinction Rebellion, who you kind of may may know as well, very kind of uh, direct kind of uh, action activists around environmental change. And they also talk a lot about this idea that what you really need to do is kind of harness change among, I think they talk around three and a half percent of a population. And that that being a, a sort of tipping point sufficient enough to start to kind of create these sort of significant significant waves of change. But they mean something different than I just said. Okay. Because I don't mean action. I don't mean tipping something so more people are taking action. I mean working on the capability because I believe action taking, direct work, undermines people becoming conscious. And the other thing is it's not a one-time event. It's not, you know, as I said, I have to start today and say, Carol, wake up. You have to do it over and over and over and over. That action-taking group is not awake, or they wouldn't be so directly trying to project human ideas on taking action. So much of my work nowadays is with well-intended people who want to change the climate, want equality, want uh, a healthy uh, ecosystem and human beings in that interaction. And they have a plan, best practice for how to do it. My work is helping them wake up and see that the many humans decide what should be done to fix or evolve, whatever the word is they use, things that are in existence already. You are already working against the change because if you give other people the answer, here's the 100 or 30 or 17, depending on the list you follow, you're not waking people up at all. You're teaching them to borrow ideas again, to not think for themselves. And it's the consciousness itself that matters, not the action we take, because the ableness we can develop to have consciousness is what lets us choose better actions in that moment. And there are no generic actions. And when you get a group who's defining generic actions, Einstein would say, that's what got us in trouble. We decide and then we we sell it to everyone. Behaviorism did that. Capitalism did that. I mean, everything is, let's make it all generic. The work is consciousness of a specific being, which can mean uh, neighborhood or uh, a life shed or a child. Our presence with that, our consciousness, is what I'm working on, not shifting a bunch of people toward a program where group is defined and driving them wildly in that direction because they will succeed. But the problem is we don't have conscious beings from that process. And so one of the things which actually was coming up for me as you were talking there, I remember a few years ago reading about uh, the asset manager BlackRock. Obviously, they, they, their CEO, whose name has just gone from my mind, but it, uh, publishes that letter each year. And they, over the last few years, have been very vocal around sort of talking about sort of shifts to more kind of environmental environmental awareness. But at the same time, they're also the largest owner 
of um, of coal and uh, I don't, basically sort of coal and, and fossil fuel producing power stations. And I was kind of really struck at that sort of time. And I kind of bring this up because I'm really curious about process of change, actually, is the, is the thought that was coming to me as you were talking there. And this kind of role of helping people kind of evolve the, the consciousness or that being, the, that being the, 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 the nature of the work. And I remember looking at the big environmental charities and to see what their response was. And actually, there was very little response. I think Friends of the Earth had issued some... Um, press releases basically is trying to call it out and say this is a kind of dual hand whatever the right word is behavior it's kind of contradictory behavior there was something I remember reading that and feeling like in terms of a kind of process of change this feels kind of wrong because it feels like there is this sort of huge facade of an organization like BlackRock which represents many many entrenched ideas there's an organization like Friends of the Earth who are sort of on the outside and in a way, their response was sort of throwing a paper aeroplane at this huge glass and steel facade. And so what I'm kind of curious about in what you're talking about, this, this idea of consciousness being the work, what does it mean for that kind of situation, that Black Rock situation? All right. So um, I worked with a mining company. That mining company had a huge number of mines of all kinds, but particularly uh, titanium to, get, to convert from the ore so you could make titanium dioxide. And it was very destructive to the creeks, rivers, health of everyone in the Australia region. There are several things you can do to work on that. Uh, when Chad Holliday, who is the uh, chairman, president, and CEO of DuPont, who owned that mine, asked me, he said, uh, Carol, the problem is that Titanium is one of the major uses put to many health things, to uh, major industries like uh, home improvement, construction, everything. It needs to be transparent. And I want to work on this, but I know you will not talk about the issues. I said, right. Are you okay with that? He said, well, this one feels so hard to me. It feels like it's a core of what I would love to have changed. And so I said, all right, here's how we do it. We educate people on how to think systemically, and we never, ever mention ecosystems, sustainable, well, the word sustainability wasn't even in the lexicon at that time, but we don't mention any moral or value reasons. All we're going to do is educate the mind, which was never developed. The schools don't do it. Families don't do it. Churches don't do it. I, unless you were in a very rare, like an indigenous community or some very specialized family, you didn't learn to think systemically. And that means you didn't learn to see your effects. You didn't learn to see how your uh, ideas came to your mind, where you got them. You didn't vet them. You just learned to be a good student and to take your test, get out, and go get make a make a living get rich maybe so we set out over the first two years to educate people on how life works how actually ore comes to exist in a, a mountain learning because i said to them what we're going to do is invent a proprietary product that you will be able to transform the industry and put yourself in a leadership position of first and be able to make money that is way beyond what it is due. 
Now, I didn't say, and by the way, we're going to do all these good things for Earth. And I never mentioned all that. And what I did is educated them on how to think. And they came to a conclusion, which I could have never come up with, which was we have, I have people rewrite their premises that they're operating on, where those came from, go check them. One of the premises they had was you can only make titanium dioxide out of very high-grade ore. In other words, you had to take down 90% of a mountain to get 10% of what you needed because there was so much low-grade ore. And I said, well, let's go check that. And we looked at all the challenges, the expense of doing that. And they began to notice when I said, well, what are the effects of that? They said, well, we have to do this deep well injection. I said, well, how does that work? Let's talk about And they they said, I didn't say, I didn't bring them any experts. They said, well, we've, we've been looking at how, how ore gets formed. What's happening is it's also affecting every time we work on deep well water. And we are contaminating the water. We'd rather not do that. I said, okay, let's work on getting a product that won't do that. Within three years, which was a record time for being able to change uh, an industry's production process, we've, uh, we, I say we because I'm in the mix of helping educate them. I don't offer ideas. But we came up with a way to make titanium dioxide out of low-grade ore. So we reduced by 90% the damage that was being done. And as we did that, we did come up with a proprietary product, which for uh, several decades, however, however long the renewal you were able to do an extension came about. And they started saying, well, while we're at it, there's these, not only the deep well injection process, which we could get rid of, and I think everybody should. So they went and fought for regulation on chain invented a process to get rid of deep well injection. And then they started looking at, well, how do you manage tailings? And I've forgotten all the things they did with that, but they involved communities, volunteers, and pretty soon that mine had so little impact because they kept refining. And so they were down to needing very, very little ore. Now, people have said to me, your friend Marcus would say, but they shouldn't mine at all. Okay, well, then we have to quit doing everything we do because titanium is literally in almost every product from clothing. And it's one of the few products that its essence is opacity. It makes it possible not to see through things. But if you could reduce on this planet and the impact of everything that is so destructive, by we ended up at 94% reduction. Wouldn't you want to do that? The most important thing that happened is those leaders who were in that group with us helped get rid of Freon, which was burning a hole. Uh, it's burning a hole in the atmosphere. And once you have figured out how to do that, make it open source so that you don't have India go make Freon. And if you find here, quit making it, someone else would. So they figured out how to make a better product and make it open source. Those were the leaders who were with me in Australia and it slowly spread. Now, unfortunately, when 
Chad retired, and many of the things we did were undone because a new leader came in who had worked with Jack Welsh. And anyways, sad story. But the answer to your question is you educate an undeveloped mind to see its effects. Because if you tell people what to do, do this, don't do that, they don't know how to examine their own mind for the next destructive process. And so you get groups like you just came up with, and they've got the answer, and they want to get 3% on top of their answer. And I want to tell you someone who did that and created disaster in a moment. But the minute you have a group and they get a platform and they get enough recognition, they can sell something no matter what, and they haven't improved the quality of thinking among people to see their own effects, like on their children, the way they treat them, or their neighbors, or their uh, legal arguments are taken. If you don't learn how your mind works, it creates all that as source. You can't get it changed because the next one will happen. Yeah, I mean, there's loads now. I think the big thing I'd like to come back to is actually helping me how to think. Because in many ways, I think, like what I'm kind of hearing and, and learning, actually, what feels like the most useful work, the most important work, then, of course, just actually just starts here starts in the the kind of in my heart mind starts so then affecting my relationships my children my colleagues my partners etc etc so that feeling like the important work and that it sounds like from what you're talking about that it's about teaching me and and the likes of me how to think well is part of that so what i am talking about is not so much teaching thinking but developing your capacity to see and understand how you can manage your own thinking. So it's at a meta level, thinking about thinking, thinking about how my mind does what it does. And so if I were to teach you, I'd be in the old model. I'd say, here, think like this. Well, that's in some ways what your uh, folks that are after the 3.5% are doing here, think like this. And the minute you've done that, they're borrowing someone else's thinking. They're not developing a capacity to understand how their thinking is driving their actions and the effects they have. So you probably know about behavioral psychology. You know, John Watson is one of the founders, B.F. Skinner. And you may have some sense that it is uh, pervasive on the planet now. There, It's managed to creep in. I worked in... Africa for a while in Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Kenya, and uh, there were in Southeast Africa. It was there. It had been brought by the missionaries uh, to incentives, rewards. And John Watson, who was the founder and believed that some human beings were smarter than others, and we had to learn to control human beings because some of them were so bad. And he was fighting against the eugenicists who he agreed with in that we shouldn't have bad people uh, doing things, but he didn't believe in killing them or limiting birth. He believed in controlling people after they were born. And that if you had an elite group, he called them the experts, which I eschew as much as they can. I'm not an expert. Because that meant somebody else would figure it out and then they would control me. And he did. We have now made that so pervasive people can't see the impact of it. 
And they did it with a strong plan and intention where they were going to perpetuate this and make it permanent in the schools of psychology, but particularly education generally. They went after schools, military, and families. And to break parents thought that children could grow up and learn from being in a certain kind of environment. They had to be constantly conditioned. And then it spread and it went to corporations particularly. I don't know of a corporation anywhere that doesn't try and control its people by incentives, rewards, recognition, that is actually undermining our capacity to think as humans. My seventh book is the research that I've done for five decades on behaviorism, and I had it happen to me, so I learned a lot. I was diagnosed as being mentally retarded when I was um, 14 years old, and there was a program which they wanted to put me in uh, so as they said to my mother, I can learn to be a productive citizen uh, and the the country wouldn't have to take care of me or my parents. And my mother was mentally ill, so she didn't even understand what they were saying. And luckily, she never signed the papers. So I didn't get put in that program. But I became so mindful of these kind of things. And I noticed when I went to college and when I, I never really had a job, but uh, where, where I was, I was being conditioned. The whole idea that somebody could decide, like John Watson, that we should control all human beings, you can see it's so effective. They got there 3.5% or whatever the actual amount is, and now it's pervasive. And most people think that they have to get some experts that can borrow their ideas, like this group that you mentioned, and they think for everybody, they're the experts. Anytime you hear the word expert, be very, very aware, be very cautious, because it means people think you can't think for yourself and you, uh, you can't develop people. You have to control them benevolently. It's good for them. And so that whole idea that we can decide what people should think, what they should do, and then we'll set up incentives and laws, regulations, whatever it is. Toward that means we're undermining all nations in having democracies work. So it feels like what um, what you're talking about is this this so this huge sort of momentum, this sort of giant truck at a sort of global scale, driving along this kind of behavioral psychology movement, which actually is under is undermining our our ability to flourish, our ability to create, our ability to contribute, our ability to be creative, all of that sort of that deep well of ingenuity that we have rising up inside us as humans, that movement, that behavioral psychology movement actually clips that, it curtails that. And so what you're talking about are creating the conditions where, if I'm correct, creating the conditions where that can flourish more. Is that is that right? That sort of contrast? Yeah, you're framing it a little differently than I think about it. I think you're in the right direction. But I, I think what it's undermining is our ability to understand how the world works. That's much earlier. But, because people will still innovate. But they'll innovate and try to be an expert. Do you know of anyone who doesn't try and get to a status and go look at LinkedIn for a day and everyone will have the word expert in or thought leader in 
and I just noticed that even my PR company put thought leader on something about me. And I said, haven't I told you that that's a terrible idea? Uh, if I should lead anyone, it'll be leading me. So what is the, uh, the base, the core, the beginning of the problem is building capacity of each human being to whatever level they can go. It's way beyond anything we've ever touched because I've proven that in many companies that we've done this work. You build the capacity of all of them to see the effects of every choice they make, to see where in their own mind this starts, where it is they have false premises that they're operating from unexamined. And once you do that, you begin to have teams that are organized not around production, but around life in the world and how it is you want to help particular customers think better about their work. And when you do that and your work is only, you don't go into the company, like I've said to Chad Holiday, you don't go into the company and give them new best practices of mining. You give them system, living systems capability to think about how things work. And then they end up seeing for themselves you end up taking down mountains because of false premise. You end up contaminating water because of false premise. And none of that is because I gave them a practice and then they could innovate. They were already innovating. They were innovating on crazy on these false premises. So the core is consciousness of our effects and the source we have, the false premises that drive those. I've never said it quite that way. I like that. Good. Well, we've recorded this, so that's all good. <laughs> so if I bring this back to then myself, thinking about sort of me, me as an individual, how would you kind of best help me think about how I think? So first thing I do is I find you. I don't work with individuals because you can't do it alone. Uh, you can read. The reason I write books is to get people like you to ask that question. But there are two routes. One, you have to be in a group of people who committed to do this all the time, every day. It's not like you could go do a turnkey. So I work with a company on their value-adding process, and you would be in that. And so you would attend, like, let me give you another company, Seventh Generation is a small one, because you probably have companies that are small uh, company listeners. And uh, with Seventh Generation, once a month, I flew to Burlington, Vermont, and that for a week, part of every day, we were working with communities, including on one day of that week, we worked with almost everybody in the whole company for a half a day on building their capacity to think. And they were in teams that were working for particular customers or stakeholders. And I'm educating them about what I know at the moment, and I get better over life, thank goodness, on how to think. And you applied it to what your work was. I didn't ever say, so here's what you should do with that company. Here's your green belt, brown belt, whatever it is, because you're now doing this. I instead uh, taught them a lot about how living system thinking works. And that's not about nature. Nature is an abstraction. There are forests. There are uh, life sheds is the better place to start. So we might have them looking at how a life shed works, or we might have them looking at how 
an entire Earth-to-Earth supply system through manufacturing out in the world works. And I would give them totally different frameworks about how to look at that that confronted their premises about how they should work, like functionally, this group, this group, doing this, handing it that. All of that is not living system. Plus, I would help them work on self-reflection. So every meeting we started with personal reflection, like as a, as a team, what do you tend to be reactive about, I might ask them. And where does your ego get in the way? And where are you able to be on purpose about what you're doing? And there's a whole framework and a set of practices you can develop around uh, that framework. And then we would the next time come and look at how qualities of energy work. And then we come and look at what are the different minds we put to work. And then next time we'd look at paradigms. But all of it's applied to whatever that group works on, they work together. Now, if you're not inside of a company, I, you have to be a part of a community, as I said earlier. So I run communities that people become members of for mostly their entire lives. I've got the woman who is the chair at Stanford University, even in the UK, you probably know about Stanford. So she's chair of the management science and engineering group, which spawns all these amazing students uh, who create Googles and all that kind of stuff. She's the chair and she's been in my communities for 42 years. I have professors at Harvard and MIT, and then I have small company owners who run a company called How Good, which is a company that helps people self-evaluate how it is that their products affect uh, the ecosystem, and they give them a certification, not where they're stamping how well they do, but how much they're growing and learning and changing how to help others learn. And if you're in one of those groups, you will meet with me somewhere between uh, 12 and 40 times a year, all for education. None of it's for here's a practice, here's what you do, because it takes a lifetime. And the good news is we get better all the time. And this is something Tyson and I agreed on, that him growing up in a, a tribal setting with uh, a community who knew that this developing of people was core, uh, starting when uh, most young men, there were few groups who do it for young women now, in which there are more. You're put into a process with elders where you're learning how to be together and do what uh, serves the whole community. So that community meeting with me doesn't mean to get a belt or a program or a list of 17 things and then you're in, it is a working on self. And it's working on how to how change work as well as how to work on changing you. And as you change you, you're able to do more in the world. So your answer to your question about what we do for you is we find you because you're in a business which uh, contracted with me, although I don't do that anymore. I now only develop people who are doing that. You're either inside of an organization or you join one of my communities as a change agent or you bring your small business to a collective group of small businesses where you learn to manage your own thinking and develop your own thinking, develop your being, shift what you pay attention to, see your effect, and then you become 
I think playing the role humans need to play on the planet, be conscious. So how, how do I do that? How do I start to learn and see those the, the blind spots that I have? How do I start to kind of learn and see those uh, those the kind of I, you know where my ego is is turning up too often? All of those things which kind of which curtail that. All right, you join a community that knows how to do that. You cannot do it on your own. I can't give you today, and this is what people are always saying to me: give them as a takeaway. What's your takeaway? then people could then go do that, and tomorrow they'd be different. Well, the takeaway is it'll take you about 10 to 20 years to rid yourself of all the garbage you've been socially conditioned to do. But the good news is the day you start in a community, and you have to find a community or join one. One of the reasons I do my globally and online and have for quite a few years is that there aren't many schools with a capital S that work at the most uh, foundational level for how we come to be effective and good change agents in the world. So I would say to people when they want a takeaway, I said the takeaway is you, you're an incomplete human. And there's the incompleteness means no one helped you develop the power of the mind that you have. I mean, I think about once in a while, I'm just shocked at the things I can think about. Like even what we're talking about right now, I would say even 10 years ago, I couldn't see all of what I see now. And it's not because I'm smarter than anybody else. I made me smarter than I was. But the real work is you do it every day, and every day you do, you're able to fix something. There isn't an answer. Then tomorrow you go do it, do it forever, and you've changed. And that, that illusion that we have, that somebody has a program or a set of best practices, we do them, but the world will change. It's starting in the wrong place. Start with, how do I make me an increasingly developed human? And I'm not talking about just growth with new skills and things like, oh, what's her name? Carol Dweck says, you're the fixer of growth. Well, no, those are two things. And they're, they're, growth is better than fix. But development is so much better because it means at a deep level, you're shifting what you can even consider. And so don't look for the expert like Carol Dweck or, uh, or Paul Hawken or your group who has their set of answers or the United Nations with their 17. No, look for the community that's building the capacity of the mind you have to see itself and make itself really useful and develop the being that can be the container to hold all of this. And you have to do it in community. So the Buddhist idea of kind of being in Sangha, being in yeah, community, right, doing exactly. the work together. So the Sangha is critical. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. What is the prompt that brings somebody to the kind of work that you do, that brings somebody to an awareness that this is the work which is right for them now? I think in some ways, the majority, I don't know how much, and maybe it's all, and we don't have any way to know this, everyone is seeking. At some level, we have all known, especially when we were younger and less conditioned. I mean, if you think about it, and this is probably true of you, Ben, you had visions of being able to do something great. My first earliest one I remember was I was going to be a dog lawyer and keep all those dogs out of the pound and me put to sleep, and I was going to change the world. And, you know, I think I was about 12 before I realized 
There was no such thing. And that wasn't the right goal. But we all have something in us. So we're seeking. And I always say that my work is not to proselytize. It's not to convince people. It's not to be a thought influencer or a, an expert converting a, a people. It is to be a good screen that they can see through and see whether it's their work. And if it's not me, they will keep seeking. What the lineage teachers, and I've, I've studied um, and spent time with Mahayana Buddhist communities, with uh, some Hindu communities run by Astrea Avendo and the mother of Socratic communities. I did most of my undergraduate work in political philosophy through platonic dialogues and Socrates. I did some Zen Buddhism too. But there are threads that if you pay attention, run through all of those ancient lineages. And what I believe, I try and write what I think are the core that went through them, and I translate them from the ancient languaging into the modern uh, imaging so people can see it. And that turns out to be something like the living system. So what happens is this, they have a name for this part of us that is seeking. And there are, there are probably 20 different names. The one that's coming to my mind right now comes out of the... Um, Sufi world that was borrowed by Gurdjieff, which is magnetic center. I think that's that. I may have it right. And the uh, the idea is you all come into the world with something that says you're looking to serve, you're looking to make a difference, you're looking, but you have to work on you now. Find find that place. Find how to connect your essence. And we no longer have schools where people can go do that. The capital S school. Instead. We're thrown in to figure out what your career is or your purpose. By the way, I don't believe human beings have individual purposes. I think that was somebody who did a great job of stealing an idea called purpose, but making it really popular and making it a personal, individualized thing. Purpose means to be serving the purpose of something else. I have a role in all of it. Humans have a role. We don't have an individual purpose. And when we do, it becomes ego-driven. And it's not ego in the arrogant sense. It is more ego in the expert sense. Uh, we want to be good. So what awakens people is touching something that feels like it was what they were looking for. And so this conversation we have today, two or three people will go, I, I don't even understand 90% of what that woman said. But it had something in it, like it's even happening to you right now. You can feel something like, yeah, there's something there that I'd like to know more about. My job is done. It's helping give you a way to find something that you were already looking for. And it may not be through me because, uh, you know, there are people, there, I'm not the only one on the planet who understands what I'm talking about. But you have to find a home and you have to stick with it and you have to not jump from one teaching to another. Because if you think, well, all right, I tried Zen Buddhism and didn't do it. And so uh, I'll go to something else and something else. The Dalai Lama has a great uh, piece of advice on that. He said, find one thing to take instruction from, which means you have to put up with the things you don't agree with. 
you have to put up where it makes you uncomfortable. You can't run away and amalgamate. I'll take a little of this, a little of that. Take instruction from one path, and then you can take inspiration from others. Uh, and I've always thought that was a good piece of advice. So find something, and if it's a lineage tradition, which means it's been tested more than in the last 20 years, which a lot of stuff is nowadays, or 30 or even 50, uh, if it's got thousands of years of vetting, then you should stick with it until you knock off your sharp edges uh, and are no longer uh, reacting to it. And then you'll be ready to really go to work. So I'm curious, how does that sort of tally then with your own experience where you've taken influences, you've taken teachings, you know, you're talking about the different sort of traditions and lineage, lineages which you have, you've taken from, you, you know, you've taken inspiration and teaching from. That idea we're just talking about there about the Dalai Lama's, the point about finding one, taking that as your thing. How, how do those things, is that, is that, how do those things link? Well, most of those were very, when I was very young, and then I picked a path. And as I stayed on that path for about 30 years, I began to see that what I'd done in my searching had given me a foundation for understanding how the uh, common uh, spiritualized principles and premises existed not in one tradition. My jumping around had been my inability to manage me not to agree with something that was already preset. And so all of that was my growing up, and I'm still growing up. I'm about to be 80 years old, and you know I'm losing all sorts of faculties. I mean, it's interesting to watch your body the, that you got for a few years start to decay, and I have speech problems now and swallowing problems. And uh, But anyway, all of that was me finding a path and it was very hard for me to let go of uh, Mahayana Buddhism particularly. But as I found a path and a community that doesn't exist anymore except I and many of my members work to bring the principles to life, you then be able to make sense of how you will use it and how a community of you will evolve it but not by changing it. Because if you start changing the school you were part of before you've learned to manage your ego and your mind, as you said, your reactivity and all that, you will dumb it down. And I see a lot of that happening. Uh, so I think part of my last few years of uh, work on the planet is to help people see how their mind is working with lineage traditions and now not to uh, adapt them so that they're um, sort of ego-driven. I mean, there are a few people who've taken Sri Aurobindo's work and made it more popularized, and they've lost the essence of what was there. So I keep trying to help well-intended people. I think I'm not working on the tough folks like DuPont anymore. I work on the well-intended, how we work on ourselves, and become a part of the consciousness that's needed so that the right kind of work can be done. So one of the things which I was kind of feeling very viscerally what you were talking about is the phrase that living systems, the living systems capability is such an evocative phrase that uh, I, I feel really viscerally. 
And so is that the, the sort of, is that what you would say is the is the is the kind of guiding idea behind the work now if such a thing exists? Yeah. So it is the same thing as all the other things I'm talking about, but it is one that creates you know, I'll talk about a screen so people can find this work. You have to have something that does for you what you just did that's accurate. So there are people talking a lot about nature right now. And nature is an abstraction. It's you can't point to nature. I mean, some people say, well, it's everything. You have to point to something. In nature also, the way most people talk about trying to borrow and mimic it, is kind of a dead thing. I mean, in the sense that all leaves are alike or all forests are alike. The real key with living systems, the term, and the reason I use it right now is it's very specific to a place, a person, and you have to start with looking at something as a whole. When you look at the more, the more, as this one, the popular term, and misuse of the living system, it's categorized ideas. So you get groups that work on rivers or forests or water or uh, climate. You have all these segmented things. If you look at the work of quantum physicists, which I did when I worked on my dissertation, I looked at how does that translate into how we think of life. And the key for our living systems is they always start with a whole, a whole community, a whole a person, a whole life shed. They never start with categories, with fragments. And so I'm trying to use a term that is accurate and evokes the things that need to be thought about. They come from all these lineage, indigenous, quantum background, and the idea of something alive and changing and specific. It's never the same, can't be made generic or standardized. That's why I use living systems. And I also have uh, my colleagues in Regenesis here, really the people I owe a lot to understanding at whatever level I do living is they're, they're uh, naturalists and they're people who really do look at things as alive and they have indigenous background, ecological science backgrounds, not the kind that takes a frog, kills it, cuts it up in pieces, pins it to a board and then thinks they understand frogs because they can name the part and the, what their work is or their role. So... Living systems is an ability to image life at work unfolding in each specific unique place, person, being, situation, and being fully present with thoughts alive. It's not nature. So that's why I, and that's how I use the term living system. Yeah. So this idea of kind of starting with wholeness essence i know being a being a key part of that that's right and then the, the general idea around evolving capability or capacity yeah there are seven first principles that i learned from my grandfather these are not his words but uh as i've studied along my life i've named them start with a whole and then understand the essence of that whole what makes it what it is now you can see the potential it has not comparatively but distinctively. Now you can develop that potential of that essence of that whole. But you have to do all that in the context of a nested system because 
they'll live alone. That's why you can't go learn how to do seeing yourself. Not because you need feedback from others. I don't believe, I wrote a book called No More Feedback. But so you can see how you exist and affect things. And then you can pick nodal interventions that you can make. Where can I make a difference without projecting my human arrogance? And finally, how do feels work? So I learned those seven from my grandfather. And they've stood me in good stead for, well, at least 74 years that I remember him first talking to me about. Yeah, that's great. So I think I, you were talking there about the kind of being beware or being wary of rather the, uh, you know, kind of jumping between lineages and teachings and traditions and settling things. Because I think I certainly have a, you know, I'm kind of guilty of that to, to an extent, certainly, you know, kind of spent 15 years or so in a uh, insight Buddhist tradition, uh, but also kind of very much also like the, the kind of flip to that was, you know, my early work for the kind of first big chunk of my working life, very kind of entrepreneurial. And actually, it was all just about creating a company that was successful without really kind of much thought. That was then sort of influenced by sort of 15 years or so in the kind of Buddhist tradition. But then equally, my head gets turned a little bit by Taoism and other Eastern traditions. But I think, the, you know, the, for me, there is a thread kind of bubbling that which is this, which, which, I'm sort of taking your thing around living living systems. There's something in that which feels important to me. And I think part of the work that I'm doing is is trying to understand what that is too. Well, the reason, when the Dalai Lama was asked what he meant by take instruction from one and inspiration from many, he said, your ego will not want you to do this work. You will want you to avoid things that confront it. It has its own life independent of you. And if you jump around, you leave the man your ego is being confronted. At the very time, you should stay with it. And the reason you have to not jump around is you want to get back where your ego is a servant of you, not where it is the master. And that only happens by in a tradition you stay all the way through with. Now, I don't think he was talking about if you find something and it feels more like a cult and you're not allowed to think for yourself, he's not talking about stay with that. He's talking about finding uh, the wisdom traditions. And he called them that uh, for years. I haven't heard it recently. You are submitting your ego to discipline and asking it to face itself and come to work in the role it has. See, in the traditions that I work through, the ego is useful once it developed, once our essence can say, ego, I need you to have a little more confidence. We're going to work on that. We're going to work on all this stuff that gets in your way of you feeling insecure. Uh, we need you to have a, a bit more individuality, you know, not just following other people. I mean, the work of the ego is really to help us have the courage, the bravery that we need. But if what is applied to is our own self-aggrandizement, like you said, we, and the same was true for me. I built two small companies in my 20s. That was where it started. And I was reading and being involved in all this stuff, but they were like kind of separate worlds for a long time. So the reason you want to stick with something is to develop your full being and your ability to manage it. 
through all the disruptions, all the uh, restraints, all the things that you're going to need to face to take on a meaningful contributing role. That's great. I mean, that's a, a, probably a really good place to leave it. So I think the thing that I'm sort of struck by, which I can see in my own experience and seeing the people who I spend time with, you know, so much of the work that we do is like a, a sort of regurgitation of everything which is whizzing around in our minds. And oftentimes we're just, you know, we are mainly completely blind to this. And so kind of really appreciate everything you're talking about, which is about trying to understand that context so that that regurgitation isn't quite so violent and bad smelling. So there's a word that's in the Greek that speaks to what you just said called aporia, A-P-O-R-I-A, which means be awake, see what's going on, don't be asleep. And that's what was... uh, part of Socrates' teaching. You can read it in Platonic dialogue. So I think for me, that's kind of the summary. Work on a poor APO. I can't even say it today. <laughs> A-P-O-R-I-A. <laughs> it's in my, a couple of my books. All right, Carol. Thank you so much for sort of bundling those decades and decades and decades of wisdom into, you know, 50-odd minutes of conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you, Ben. Best to you. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you like the conversation with Carol, if you think other people will be inspired by it, interested in it, intrigued by it, angry by it, whatever it may be, of course, please feel free to share. We really, really rely on your support and your feedback and your input. So any ideas, of course, also let me know. If you're curious about more of these conversations, search up buddhaontheboard.com. You can find a link there to Peripheral Thinking. Everything podcast exists there. Uh, Meantime, thanks again. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your energy. Thanks for your input. And if you like this conversation with Carol, why not check out another conversation with Marcus Link? who is really living and breathing these regenerative business principles in his own mega startup, New Foundation Farms. Uh, We hope you enjoy. Look forward to you joining us next time. Bye-bye.